Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. If you're a fan of this podcast and have an interest in conductors and conducting, may I suggest subscribing to our supporters club over at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. With six different levels of subscription starting from just £5 a month, you can join many other subscribers in enjoying exclusive extra bonus mini-episodes, interviews with prominent figures in the world of classical music, group and personal Zoom meetings, and even the chance to have conducting lessons from myself. The details are in the show notes below, it's quick and easy to join, and I'd love to see you come and join the conversation all about conducting with the other subscribers and myself very soon. Today, I conduct a conversation with an American conductor who has a truly global career. He is currently music director or artistic advisor of orchestras in Spain and Sweden, and since recording this episode, he's become principal guest conductor with the Orchestra Sinfonica Nazionale della Rai in Italy. It's a pleasure to welcome Robert Trevino. Robert, lovely to talk to you today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Um, can you take us back to when music first came into your life? How do you remember it coming in? Yeah. Um, and Mike, actually, talking about my going to talk about my background and where I come from. I think it, once I, I, I explain this to, to you and also to, to the people who, who will be listening to this, I think it may become evident why I feel as strongly as I do about the things I do and, yeah. and also social good. So I, I grew up uh, in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm not a very um, affluent family at all. In fact, uh, I will, by many people's standards, you would say quite a poor family. Mm. And... Um, there are no musicians in my family. I'm the only one. And when I was eight years old, I came in contact with the Mozart Requiem and fell in love with this music and said, whatever that is, I want more of it. <laughs> and uh, I didn't get to start music until I was 13 in the public schools. Mm. And it's very, I, I emphasize that public schools part of what I'm, my story, because public schools mean that other people paid for me to be trained in some capacity as a musician. Mm. Uh, the public had created an opportunity for me to engage with my passion as a young boy. And it was my passion that allowed me to, to excel in it, but also the great generosity of other people. Yeah. And yeah. it's in that, my recognizing that very initial stage of my development as a musician, needless to say, I mean, of course, my family also did have enough money for food most times, so we were taking government money to pay and put food on the table. We didn't have electricity in my house growing up <laughs> for the first couple of years. We had a, an ice box for sandwiches and things like that. And that's not hyperbole, I mean, it's just how it was. Um, but it was the public who did so much to make it possible for me to A, eat, B, um, grow up in, in a safe school and to be educated and learn and follow my passions and, and to learn how to learn and to engage as a, as a human being and an adult. And then I went off to, uh, I graduated, left high school when I was about 16, a few years early. Um, I finished quite early and then went off to university. And then I was in Chicago from 19 years old. I was accepted at Roosevelt University in Chicago as a bassoonist. And then I got my first job the, as a conductor mm. in the Ohio Light Opera in Worcester, Ohio, uh, mm. where there are more cows than human beings. <laughs> 
And, um, but, and, and my story goes on like this. So you went to Aspen, went to Tanglewood, uh, studied with David Zinman, met people like Michael Tosin Thomas, um, people like Leif Segerstam from Finland, and developed. And people have all along the way have helped me out and have given of themselves to give me the possibility to have a rich and rewarding and fulfilling life in music. Mm. So when I think, and I'm always so in contact with this, this narrative of mine, this story of mine, that it, it, it uh, only uh, encourages me to work not only harder, but also with more dedication, more love, more compassion, uh, more sense of giving to see that now I'm in a position of some privilege uh, leading to orchestras and, and working in beautiful places and having colleagues and other conductors, young conductors and young musicians and even younger than me, even though I'm young. And to, to find a way to, to help everybody out to, to develop and to do something for the public. And then now, it's, now I'm at a point where I'm in a position that I can start to give back and start to, to make something for people. And now in this pandemic, when everybody is suffering, you know, I remember some, a friend of mine saying that, uh, that every person is in, in the midst of overcoming a challenge and those, everybody has them, whether somebody has just died, uh, they are, um, somebody is feeling alone, somebody is sick, somebody is homeless, somebody is without a job. There are millions of ways that we feel pain and suffering as human beings. And one of the ways that we don't feel it and that we have as an ointment against that is building community and having people to come to our aid and to be with us and to show us that we're not alone. And through that, we have so many possibilities to overcome. And I was speaking with my wife recently and we were discussing how even if you talk about uh, the world wars, you can easily go through those uh, the, the, the history books and find that there were entire populations of people who were completely unaffected by it, by, by and large, didn't have anything to do with it, you know? Of course, there are millions of people who lost their lives and, and people whose cities were under blockades and things like that, of course, and that was terrible. But this, this incident, COVID-19, has hit everybody. Mm, it's literally everybody. And um, now there, there, you could almost argue that there's a collective trauma and we don't have the... the, the the, the safe spaces, and I mean that in the, in the sort of the 21st century way, like a concert hall, we don't have our places to try to process that information. And we are really needed. People need to be able to go to a concert, not because they need to hear a Beethoven symphony, because the message of a Beethoven symphony is important for us to find a way to go through, yet again, another difficult moment, not only in our individual lives, but also in our collective history as a species. Mm. That's true. It's absolutely true. Um, I want to zero in on your conducting. You mentioned four names there. Segerstam, Kurt Mazur, uh, Michael Tilson Thomas, uh, David Zinman. But did before you had masterclasses or assisted them, did you have any lessons while you were at university? I read that you formed your own orchestra. But oh, did, did you did you just attack it like I did? I really only had some formal lessons of music college for a year, and then when I started conducting for for real, it was sort of after after watching people conduct me when I was in the orchestra. What? How did it start for you? Well, I always wanted to be a conductor, 
since quite being quite young, since about eight or, or nine. Um, the first time I actually conducted an orchestra was while I was in youth orchestra. Yeah. And um, at the time I was working, uh, I had taken a few lessons, by a few I mean like one or two, uh, with a gentleman, Harman Gutierrez, who was the, the conductor of the youth orchestra. I had just won the position. But um, before that, my bassoon teacher, Charles Hall, actually had, um, had aspirations of being a conductor himself. So we had some studying in that, and he actually was my first real teacher and talked to me about how you study a score, how you could study a score, how to do some basic conducting. So I worked with him, and then I met Armand Gutierrez, and I worked with him. And then I had lessons with a gentleman of Eduardo Brown, who was the assistant conductor of the Fort Worth Symphony at the time. Oh, no, resident conductor, pardon me. And he gave me quite a few lessons. He was a student of um, Otto Werner Mueller from Juilliard School. So... Mm -hmm. Quite an old-fashioned, very, very autocratic, old-school guy. Uh, and that is the foundation of my work, in fact, actually. My studying was in that style. Yeah. Interestingly enough, my bassoon teacher was a stu student of uh, William Winstead, who was a student of Charles Schoenbach, who was from the Curtis Institute. So all this Philip Curtis Institute, Juilliard stuff kind of had some element by different generations, of course, but had something to do with what I, I, I studied. And then when I went to uh, Chicago, I started taking lessons with a gentleman named, named uh, Cliff Colnott, who was the resident conductor of the Civic Orchestra of Chicago. And he was faculty, is faculty, I think, still now at DePaul University. A really brilliant intellectual human being. Uh, one of the, I remember, just to put him in perspective, he said, if I, if I could only rehearse all my life and never do a concert, I'd be perfectly fine. I'm quite the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned a lot from how to get your brain in order. And then, of course, I met Boulez there in Chicago, had some interactions with him, Baron Boyne, a few interactions with him. And went to, when I went to Ohio Light Opera, um, a gentleman, Stephen Bias, uh, took me under his wing and gave me a lot of help, a lot of support. And, um, and then I met Leif Segerstam a year later, and he, I, I could say, was a conductor who I studied with quite intensely for a few years. And then I went to Davidson, and then the rest is, is, is fairly clear, I think. But, you know, I will, I will tell you, uh, in the end of all of, it, all of these wonderful and amazing people who have given me so much help and given me things to, to go further in my journey, what Kurt Mazur told, told me, and I even would say that my first bassoon teacher said, is you should always count on your fellow musicians to be your best teachers. Mm. And, um, and I have to say that... If I had to attribute more things to uh, and most things, it'd have to be to my fellow musicians who have tolerated me at various moments of, in, uh, of incompetence hmm. or, or, or youthful ignorance or exuberance or ill um, lack of experience, whatever, or in the positive sense and what been there with me on my successes. None of it would, is possible without them, and they're the ones who have really really consistently been teaching me. And even to this day, every time I'm on the podium and working with an orchestra, I learn so much from the wealth of knowledge and experience and, and creativity that it's in front of me. And I think people who, who miss that, um, that source and don't engage with it, it's not always pleasant, of course, to humble yourself in front of so many people who you're supposedly supposed to lead. But I think that there's not really a better way to lead than to be humble in front of those who who are in your charge well it's it's also 
I would argue necessary. Uh, going back to a few things you said there, you know, I had similar experiences because I was a player in the city of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra for 22 years. But when I conducted them, they put up with my inexperience, my mistakes, my, you know, over-exuberance, my lack of technical knowledge or nous. But they would see that there is somebody there who had potential, who was a good musician, and and they were willing to put up with all of that. And, and to get that chance to learn from a body of people like that, and as you then go out into the great wide world and guest conduct to learn and to appreciate and respect all of these musicians, if you don't do that, you're you're how on earth are you ever going to get better and gain from that all of that experience? Don't you agree? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And of course, you know, one of the other things that speak thinking thinking about your story, even though I don't know it so well and and and, and all the details, which, um, but I imagine them knowing you as a, an instrumentalist then told told them that you actually know what you're talking about in terms of music, whether you had the yeah. technical facility express it as a conductor in that discipline at that time it's a different issue mm. but um this actually is what was one of the best piece of pieces of advice that was given from the age of 14 for my first bassoon teacher he said you want to be a great conductor you need to know how to play an instrument well yes. enough to job and be in a professional orchestra because if you have the audacity and arrogance to stand in front of a whole bunch of people who have excelled at their profession and, and beat it out hundreds of thousands of people for one place you need to have the foundation of knowing what it is like to have gotten through that and i think that that is critically important uh, and i had a really very um i had a you know a good level on on the bassoon and was able to do anything i wanted to as an instrumentalist mm. but that process i even talk about that sometimes with an orchestra whenever i sometimes meet an orchestra that uh, that, that is not working so well, and and I and it always baffles me at first because I think how is that possible? These people beat out this fi rank and file violinist or this second bassoonist. They beat out probably two or three hundred people for this one job on this one occasion. Mm. Not to mention the fifteen auditions they took beforehand. Not to mention all the auditions they took to get into the conservatories and to graduate, and then et cetera, et cetera. So. Uh, I, I think, how is this possible that we're not working well? How people are not working well with each other right now? And what it boils down to is that, I, and I, I put a great deal of blame on our on our colleagues, uh, fellow conductors, for creating an environment where it's do do what I tell you, not what I show you. Do what I, you know, do, mm. just just follow what I tell you to do, or just you don't don't think, and yet. Or, or you know, that's not what I want. So don't do it. I mean, it. Yes, of course, there has to be a central underlying principle about your work, and somebody has to make the final determination. But if things are going really well, you have people who would sit in a practice room for eight hours a day fussing over, you know, if, if we're talking about, uh, you said you're a trumpet player. So, you know, how many times did you sit there and, and play your pictures at an exhibition and getting the right tenutos on those quarter notes and getting the right intonation on everything, the perfect phrasing and not to crack and all that. You'd spend countless hours doing that work. And, and, and then somehow when you get into a professional orchestra because of the conductor, you start then having a person who isn't even interested in you taking that time. And it doesn't even reward you. and doesn't create an environment where, where you 
even think that it's actually contributing to anything. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, in a great orchestra, they, especially if you talk about an orchestra like Chicago Symphony, I remember when I was studying in Chicago, they always used to say, we play like Chicago because we play for Chicago. <laughs> and what they mean by that, uh, it, it sounds arrogant, but actually it isn't. Their own colleagues hold them to task on yes. always being top of their game. It's the same thing in the Cleveland Orchestra. You come to that orchestra not perfectly well prepared. Before the conductor will ever have a word or look in your direction, if you're in the first violin section, you'll have 16 people looking at you like, what have you done? Mm. And that, that is what really should be happening. The, 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 the musicians are holding each other to task, and the conductor has the opportunity to help create an environment where that is the case. Because I always say, and I say this especially to my, to my orchestra in, in, the, in the Basque country, that I have developed and been spending quite a few years with now, is that you need to be great not because of me. You need to be great for yourselves because you are wonderful, great musicians who deserve that. So you need to hold each other to, to, to the standard that you wish to live by. And then we, we find the conductor, and I'll be here as long as I can be. And when I'm not here, then you'll have somebody who you deserve, mm-hmm. not who deserves you, no, who you deserve to be working with. And that you're able to engage with them and offer them something and take control of your orchestra. And I'm a big proponent of that. I mean, I'm not necessarily a big proponent of self-governed orchestras because I think that a lot of times those get marred down and, and, and unfortunately, basic problems. I mean, many musicians don't have the discipline of what an artistic administrator does have. And I mean, I don't know many musicians who went into the profession, but the idea that I want to go and and deal with you know union negotiations. I don't know <laughs> who did that, you know, but we do it and we manage it somehow because we look after our own and we make these things happen. But I think uh, there there's a discipline to to being an administrator. There's a discipline to that, and that's a lot of work, and you have to do a lot of things. And those you know those people are spending countless hours working for their orchestras. You know, I meet a general, an artistic manager for an orchestra, and they're putting in, you know, 60-hour weeks minimum, usually. They're there (laughs) from 8 o'clock in the morning till 8 o'clock at night. There is a culture, at least... When I grew up, you know, I'm now 50 years old, but it's still sort of there now in youth orchestras uh, bubbling underneath the professional level where conductors are saying throughout people's education, follow my beat, do as I say, do my, do thy bidding, basically. Um, yeah. And so, you know, there are generation after generation of people go into the music profession and then expect it to be the same. Um, and I think some orchestras are happy with that and others and the ones I like to work with and it sounds like you like to work with would rather it be a collaboration and the orchestra plays as a big chamber unit um, with the conductor's help on architecture on balance on all of that but it's a collaborative experience and I when I've worked with youth orchestras I've tried to instill that in the in at that early stage so that the youth orchestras are not reliant on somebody saying why are you not following my stick I think it's so counterproductive you know, I remember joining the CBSO and thinking, well, nobody seems to be following this guy. They're all, but they're all playing together. Um, <laughs> you know, sitting, sitting at the back of the second violin section as I was thinking, well, how, you know, how is this working? But it's not what I was brought up to do. But yeah, I'll do it. I'll play with everybody else. Um, but yeah, don't you think that maybe we should be 
looking below the, the professional level at conservatory level and, and youth orchestra level and, set, and getting people conducting them and, uh, who are willing to hand over the, more of the responsibility to the players? There's so much to be done with, it, with that, Mike. Uh, in my opinion, I agree with you 100%. And, and not only do I agree with you, but I would take that further and even, which I think maybe you would even agree with, that it's not only a necessity, but actually our art form has been, is predicated on the nature of teaching. Mm. What, what I think we do sometimes in our profession, we, we, we sort of self-justify where we say we're important because we're important, which is a bit absurd. I say youth orchestras Music education as a young person is important because it shows what is possible as in the realm of self-improvement. And yet, at the same time, that self-improvement is not only for the self, but it is for the whole. Mm. And that when you see one student who then excels on their violin and you say, congratulations, you get the achievement of doing that. But then they join a group. The group is better because of their added contribution. Yes, and that is important true. to see. So it's not that it's it on itself is important. It's in, it's important because it's a, a model by which we can see that it is possible to be exceptional as an individual, but understanding that in a collective together, all of us together, we are even more exceptional, mm. and that that is important. That there's a, and and sometimes we think that it's all about just me, 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 us, 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 us. And I know that, I, that that sounds a little bit hypo, um, hypocritical coming from a conductor whose photo is on you know <laughs> the front cover of a CD and and probably on the poster of things and in front of everybody and seemingly alone. But that's the nature of the position. But what the philosophy behind it is different for me. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. I mean, you know, that is the philosophy of the business and whoever it is who has decided that, you know, that the conductor's name font will be bigger than the orchestra or possibly even bigger than the conductor. You know, that's happened over the, the last, over the, oh yeah, probably even bigger than the composer. You know, that that's, that's happened over the last 50, 60, 70 years and has become the norm when it really shouldn't have done. Um, but then, you know, that, that's not your fault. It's just the people who run record labels or run PR agencies or whatever it is. Um, but I think what you're right, you're, you're right. You know, if you, if you give a, you get some a young musician thinking about being part of the, you know, just focusing on music and the orchestra on um, being part of that orchestral community, it gets them thinking like that in the rest of their lives. They're not just waiting for somebody to tell them what to do. That they're, they're right. questioning, they're listening, they're talking, they're discussing. Um, I suppose what I could have said the quicker way around is, is to say that you know the, the rest of the, the world in their everyday lives are normally pretty much mainly run by uh, democracies. Whereas you know when you're a youth orchestra member or a conservatoire player, you're run by a dictator. And maybe you know we should be making sure that there are more democratic, more democracies at youth orchestra. And, conservatory level than, than there have been. Um, it's, it's funny you mentioned the whole the, the whole font uh, question, uh, yeah. CDs and such, because I, I'm very lucky in my, my contract with Undine Records um, because they are a, a really very artistic organization. They have such mm. a, they, they, they make recordings not for the economic function, but rather for the artistic function, the, the idea to make beautiful things and make our art form have a greater wider audience and when we were designing the front cover of my uh, the, the beethoven cycle that i just recorded 
uh, the, we, we had a couple of mock-ups. And of course, the very first couple of them had, you know, Robert Trevino in really big letters and then Beethoven, little smaller models of New Yorkshire. And, and I, I instantly said to them, I go, no, no, there's no way that Beethoven's name has to be smaller than mine. I mean, <laughs> I didn't write the music. I've just tried not to destroy it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah. and, and I'm so lucky because actually um, the, 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 I can never remember exactly his role. A general manager, I mean, to me, he's just the boss of, of Andy uh, Rayo. And he he was just kind of like so happy with just the, the general concept that we're, we're doing this for Beethoven. And of course, you, you have to recognize from, from their standpoint what a huge risk it is for, yeah. an album, for a record company to, to take a 35-year-old at the time uh, conductor and, and record a complete Beethoven cycle. Uh, that's almost unheard of nowadays. I think it is un unheard of. And but they wanted to support me and my vision and my 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 belief that now is a good moment to hear Beethoven. Now and of course now always is a good moment to hear Beethoven. Mm. Not always is a good moment to hear any music. But that's true. I but I said to them, look, if we're going to have a long relationship like we do, and we're going to do a lot of recordings together, I said. I want you guys to be part of the long journey of my recording life, I hope, and that this would be the first Beethoven cycle I record. And that is it going to be the best one? No, but it's the one I can do right now with the people who are who, who I work with. And mm. that is valuable because the work is never finished, but we should rejoice in the work that we can do now. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, you just mentioned the word journey. Um, the the biggest comments I get on about this podcast about people's journeys from beginning to podium, but also from podium to boss. And you've just said that you're, or you said earlier that you're music director of the Basque National Orchestra and also chief at sort of Malmo Symphony Orchestra. But I wanted to go back a level before then and talk about you know after you've finished your masterclass and studies, you're associate conductor at New York City Opera for two years and associate conductor at the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra for four years um, whilst guesting, I'm assuming. What were those early years like um, when you were associate? Were you conducting more than listening to rehearsals? Um, who influenced you? Did you have people you could phone up and say, hey, I've got a bit of a problem. Um, what do you suggest? Um, how were those early years before you became a boss? Yeah, uh, those. The, so the New York City Opera was a really amazing moment. For me, I mean, it's so sad that they, they, they don't exist anymore. Mm. Mm. And um, when I was there, it was the last two years they were at Lincoln City. You know, at that time, I didn't really assist anybody specific. Um, mm. There was not a really a chief. Well, there was a chief conductor, but he wasn't there so often. Um, and my job wasn't to assist him. My job was to assist the company and do cover rehearsals, some concerts, recordings, uh, some reading sessions, things like that. Um, and that was interesting for me. Uh, at the time, it was a godsend because it was a job. <laughs> I didn't have any work. And, um, and I think I had maybe one or, one or two guest weeks at those days. Yeah. And I remember when I was at uh, in, in Aspen with my, my good friend, one of my colleagues we were laughing we we're not laughing actually we we're bemoaning the fact that we we're both looking down the barrel of unemployment and having never really truly been employed in the past we couldn't actually ever claim unemployment benefits and um but fortunately both of us got jobs mm. 
And New York City Opera was really fantastic for me. It was an opportunity to see other, a lot of other people start seeing a really high level of professionals work. To, I, I wasn't leaned on the a lot in those times. Yeah. But I watch a lot, and so therefore I got to see kind of how does one, you know, quack like a duck and walk like a duck. Right. And um, so I got to really engage with my imposter syndrome very much. <laughs> And then Cincinnati Symphony came around, and that was a pretty big shift for me. Uh, at the time I went to Cincinnati, there was no chief conductor, music director. It was right after Papa Yarby had left. Mm. And it was two years before Louis Langray would be appointed. So they were in the middle of a search. Uh, yeah. and, and during that time, I would do pre-concert lectures, conversations. I'd interview the conductors in front of the audience. Board members would come and ask prodding questions because they were curious about what, how they would answer in the public forum. Yeah. I got to see everything from the, that standpoint. Sometimes I got to be in the back room and hearing the way that decisions are made. I did get to conduct the orchestra on a few occasions, uh, subscription concerts, all the education concerts, uh, some run-out concerts, things like that. Yeah. And at that time, I started doing more guest conducting already. And in the last two years of my time in Cincinnati, I was, I would say, 80% guest conducting and 20% assisting. And I was lucky to have Louis Langre there, who was a wonderful colleague uh, and good friend and very kind human being. I have to say that I haven't had so much um, opportunities throughout my life to be able to call fellow conductors, uh, senior conductors, and ask advice. Yeah. In fact, actually, most of that type of capacity in my life to be able to phone up a, a, a senior colleague and ask advice is actually now. I yeah. have more of that now. Um, and I, so I had to figure out a lot of things on my own, which is also why I continue to as, uh, ascribe a lot of importance to the orchestra, because the Cincinnati Symphony, basically, as a collective of musicians, you know, they beat the... They, they, they beat the um, the incompetence out of me. <laughs> and, and in fact, actually, I have to say also, I am so eternally grateful to that orchestra and to that administration beyond words, really. I mean, gentleman Robert McGrath, who's the vice president of, um, of the, the orchestra, I gave them so many good reasons to fire me at different times. Because, <laughs> of course, I'm a little bit of a hard-headed human being. And that has been a good thing as chief conductor, but isn't a completely desirable trait as an assistant conductor. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. <laughs> but they really, they really saw me and, and, and they really invested in me and they tolerated my, my youthful indiscretions. And they really did a lot to, to foul down a lot of the rough edges on me. And I, I it really, if it hadn't been for since, and, and it's so funny because I was so arrogant about it at the time. When I got the job, I said, oh, I will only go there for one year. I will only be there for one year. And of course, from a, from a personal life standpoint, I wanted to be there forever because I needed a job. Yeah. But I thought, oh, I can do much better. I can do much better. And then every year I kept renewing. I kept wanting to renew even more with them because I could feel myself changing. Yeah. And I, that's really what it, what, what it needs. We need to have time to develop. That's true. And of course, if you're talking about a conductor who's standing in front of amazing musicians, I mean, you, the work is never finished. That's why you become a great conductor when you're dead. <laughs> and, but I can, I can say that it's also part of the education thing, that why I, I'm trying to constantly make new opportunities for other younger conductors to have opportunities to develop 
uh, with me or in with my orchestras or in my in my sphere of influence because I know that they need that because I so desperately needed that. Mm. And um, so Cincinnati was a pivotal moment in my life and I learned so much. It also sounds like you were there at a, a very interesting time. I don't think this has really come up on the podcast is that you were there for two years when there was no music director or chief conductor. And because you were part of the staff, you got to see how one was chosen from the inside, which us conductors don't normally get to see unless um, unless you're like me who spent 20 years playing in an orchestra and during that time uh, I was involved with two music director choices. Um, but yeah, to, to have seen that from the inside must have been quite a fascinating process. Fascinating, humbling, uh, bewildering, <laughs> many, many but I, I can't say that I was so much on the inside of the decision-making process. I think that would be overstating my importance. But I could say one thing. I could certainly see when somebody made a fundamental mistake that it cost them their candidacy. Yes. I, I was privy to those things. And that has that taught me a heck of a lot. Yeah. I mean, just some very simple boneheaded things that seem simple. And I, I, tr I try to explain this to people sometimes. And because I think sometimes somebody will say, oh, well, look at you now, Robert, you're so successful. Things are never going to change for you. <laughs> I laugh about that because I say, you know, I'm only one sentence away from, from losing my career. Absolutely true. Absolutely. You just true. have to yeah. stand in front of that orchestra and say one really very stupid thing. And now we're not talking about like this should be staccato and not legato. We're, we're talking like socially, yeah. professionally, ethically. We, you have to say one stupid thing and then you're you're done. Yes. You're done. And we, we have seen, uh, you know, a, a great deal of uh, people, you know, speaking truth to power in these days. And that has been a very important development in our profession. And I think it's something that we, we have needed and can continue to have. Yes. And, but I can certainly say that that doesn't, but that means that uh, the, the margin of error on some elements are, are, are is very small. And so you have to really check yourself every day and ask yourself, why are you doing this? What are you doing? And what do you believe? And how do you believe? And are you, are you really correct? And the answer should always be not correct enough, mm. you know, and, and they're, they're, that that's important. And people say, well, that's not a very, I hear one of my colleagues told me once, but that's not very fair. I said, what are you talking about? It's not fair. You're in a position of authority and power. You get paid more than everybody else and you get to make all these decisions. Of course, there should, should be higher liability for that. That's the, that is the privilege of the position. Mm. So you, you don't get to have it easier and less worries and then all the benefits as well. So that would be completely unethical and unfair. Therefore, going on from, you know, watching people with one sentence uh, knock themselves out of a, a music director job prospect, you must have said the right sentences to now be music director in two orchestras and the orchestras I've said. I wonder whether you could... I, I, you'd, I do have to say that in both places that English is not their native language, so I might have still said the sentence. <laughs> I they just understood. No, well, that's fair enough. But... I, I, 
I have asked this question of other conductors before, and the reason I normally ask this question is because of the countries in which the two orchestras are in, uh, being seemingly socially so different. Um, what are the differences that you find rehearsing in Malmo in Sweden and in San Sebastian in the Basque country? Do you find any big differences in how the orchestra works with you, uh, how the things are run, or, or, or are they more similar than I might think they might have been? I, I think it's an interesting question because the, the, the first thing that I was thinking is that actually the variations between ways orchestras work with me, or the way I'm working with them, doesn't seem so diverse. Mm. But you'd have to then, you one would have to sort of recognize the sort of elephant in the room. What is mm. the common element? It's me. Mm. So the fact that I work a certain way, then people are either generous enough to go in that direction or not. Yeah, that's and a great comment. So, yeah. Yeah. so, you know, both orchestras being my or uh, you know, my orchestras where I'm the chief conductor, there's a presumption of flexibility on their part towards my concept. Mm. So therefore, they don't feel so different in that way. Does each orchestra have different personalities? Absolutely. And every orchestra does have a different personality. Every musician has a different personality. And if things are going quite well. Uh, you, you get a, a big sense of a personality from the orchestra, and then you can still taste the individual personalities mm. yeah i for me that, that that things are going well when you do that things are completely going wrong if you only sense individual personalities and things are completely wrong too if you don't get any personalities mm. and it's just one one idea coming at you that's i don't so, think i don't like things. That, that's so true that really is true yeah yeah well because you know same thing when you, you're playing in an orchestra you can't you you can be a ideally you should be contributing something unique and, and distinctive and, and wonderful, but it has a realm of, of what you can do without disturbing it, mm. without yeah. being counterproductive. So it, so you should ideally be able to sense that. And when I'm working, I work in a way which is either trying to, which is usually trying to, to create that atmosphere. And that's natural to how I work. So then I think orchestras generally that I'm guest conducting, I always have tried to recognize from the very beginning of my guest conducting career, that I have been invited, that I've been invited, and I know this sounds so stupid and simple, but actually, it, it's actually really important to say it this way. They've invited me because they want to work with me. Mm. So which means that they're interested in what I have to say or how I want to do something. So therefore, I should present them how I believe things should be, and I should present to them how I wish to do things. And I should be flex, and, and I'm going there because I want to work with them. So therefore, I should be flexible to understand them as well. Mm. And therefore, it's a collabor It's really a collaboration. Um, and so I don't feel so many differences in, in, in regards to that. That attitude is, is, is one, again, we're spending a lot of time agreeing, but that's one, an attitude I took after the first time I worked away from the UK and and I was frankly, I'll be honest, I wasn't myself that week, I'm, and I'm not sure even I was even trying to be myself. I think I took it all far too seriously and got to thinking about it way too much. And since then, you know, the weight of positively spinning it round is, as you've just said, they've invited you because they want to see you conduct and they want to work with you. So just be you, be yourself. And, and at the end of it, if you get on, that's great. If you don't get on, well, then that's also life. You know, not everybody is friends with everybody, but it's more important that you are yourself and, the, and you, you do what you always do and 
and eventually enough orchestras like you if you're if you're good and you and you know you can command some respect um i think it's 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 the right attitude to have yeah when nobody is going to work well everywhere i mean no. everyone i think a good conductor can be effective everywhere yes but that's different than working well with people mm. and i i think i can say at this point I'm effective when I go to an orchestra I'm, because I know my work. I know what I'm doing. I know how to work with people. Uh, they may not like working with me. I may not like working with them. There's all these different things, but the preference. And at the end of it, I want to walk away being able to say, this collection of, work, of musicians were very professional and were interesting and had a valuable way of doing things. Maybe I don't like that for myself and I would prefer to spend my time with other people, but they also may say, hey, Robert, you know how to conduct. You do very well, and you know have a very good idea of things. It's not exactly our cup of tea. You're very valid, and you're very capable, but we prefer to spend our time with other people who make us feel differently with the work. And to yes. me, that is a perfectly fair and reasonable thing to do. And, and, I, and any of the times that I've ever met an orchestra that, that felt that way or an administration that felt that way, I've always been very happy to give them a hearty handshake and wish them well on their journey and, and, and feel very happy because to me, that's a very fair way to talk about it. Absolutely. But you know, if, if I'm a good conductor uh, and then they call, say, I'm just, you know, complete rubbish. Well, that I can take an issue with because <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm not. Yeah. And the same, you go up to a, you know, an orchestra like city of Birmingham or, you know, London Symphony, and you could say, I suppose, uh, that they're, you know, not good orchestras, and but that's that's absurd. Of course, of course. they're good orchestras. <laughs> yeah. Of course they're a good orchestra. Are they your cup of tea? Maybe not. Maybe, you know, <laughs> but that, that that's different. Yeah. And you should be, be respectful. And I think we, we, as conductors, have to be respectful enough of the, our colleagues uh, in the orchestra in this way. But I also think that the, the orchestras have to be respectful of the conductors in the mm -hmm. same way. And that doesn't always, that doesn't, I haven't, and not, it hasn't happened to me, but I have seen occasions in which it's happened. And, um, and because it's very easy, but of course you have to, you know, you know, from being in an orchestra, you, you're not really encouraged to have a nuanced position on conductors because nuance doesn't translate. You kind of have to come out and say, it's rubbish or we never want to see them again uh, or we love them and want to marry them. Because if you say anything in between, then it doesn't it doesn't translate yeah well, my, my colleagues used to get frustrated with me i've mentioned this in an earlier podcast um they would ask me at the monday morning break you know as you've just said are they are they a rubbish or b a genius you know there was no no other answer and my answer was always ask me tomorrow afternoon um i would always give them a whole day off monday's rehearsal tuesday morning and then speak to me once they've accompanied the soloist on tuesday afternoon um, and then I'll give you an opinion, but it might not go into bracket A or bracket B. It might still be, well, all right, I'll give them a concert. And yeah, some of my friends and colleagues got rather frustrated with me, you know, being open-minded about it. I mean, it's possibly why I've ended up becoming a conductor and, and having seen both sides of the of the fence. Again, I agree with you in the fact that, you know, more orchestral musicians should cut orchestral conductors some slack. Uh, frankly, they should go and have some lessons and try and do it themselves, and then they'd realise quite it's not quite as easy as you uh, think I, it is. I do, I do love I do love the orchestral musician on occasion who says, "Well, I can conduct," and they go to do it and it doesn't go so. Well. 
But I mean, we have the same, we have colleagues who think that they're wonderful, you know, con conductors who are wonderful violinists who then the deign to stand in front of the same orchestra and play conduct and it's like, what are you doing? Mm. Well, I mean, if you can manage it, fine, but if you can't manage it, please don't do that. There's so many other people who do the, that work very well, let them do it. But at the same time, you know, I also have to say, speaking from my own personal life experience, my own point of view, yeah, I'm not a sensational conductor in any way, shape, or form. I'm not a jumper, I'm not a leaper, and I'm not a, you know, I, what I do doesn't, doesn't look sensational from, from the first minute. You know, you've been in the, the profession long enough to know that you sometimes can see a person who on the first day they just blow you over with, wow, what is this? Hmm. If you saw them for two weeks, you could see a massive deficit and you'd see that it is uh, a crutch. Yes. And, uh, and, and other people who, I mean, look at someone like Bernard Hightine, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay. That guy looks, I mean, compared to, uh, compared to Dudamel or compared to, you know, uh, uh, Carlos Kleiber doesn't look like anything when he's conducting. You know, he's so basic in what he's doing. But yet, over time, you have under what people have learned that he is deeper than what that physical gesticulation connotates. Mm. And other people who are wildly athletic on the podium can show also the same depth. And I'm not saying that just because they're athletic on the podium doesn't mean that they have don't have depth, but it, they don't necessarily correlate. And in my particular case, I'm not overly athletic on the podium in the sense that somebody would say, oh my God, look at how much he feels it all the time in every moment of the rehearsal and talking about, you know, fireflies and sunrises and, <laughs> you know, nymphs and elves and waterfalls as they may be. No, I, I'm talking about, look, there's a staccato here. We need to make this more staccato. Beethoven has asked for it. Oh, look, this is the C major harmony that has been preceded by a diminished chord. We need to strengthen on the... I mean, to me, that's our work because, I mean, yes, yeah, self-expression, but self-expression through the composer. So we have that work to do. But then that's the, that's the debate of, uh, you know, do the, how much of the audience are listening with their ears and how much of the audience are listening with their eyes, let alone um, the orchestra musicians you're conducting. And I'm convinced that some of my colleagues were listening with their eyes and not with their ears to what was going on in rehearsals. Um, and, you know, that's another very long debate for another very long podcast episode. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating what people think a conductor should be, you know. Oh, how, yeah, how, how athletic that was. You know, well, you, but the performance wasn't athletic. It was just that the person stood in front of the performance was doing a dance routine. Yeah. And in my case, I can say that generally I, I, I've been very lucky that the, the people have given me my whole week to, to then make their decisions. Yeah. Because I'm a person, I, I, I am like everyone else. I am complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, you, you need to give me time if you want to get to know me and, and know whether you want to spend more time with me. You need to give me a little bit of time for me to let you know who I am. Yeah. And who, letting you know who I am, I'm not going to read like a penny novel that's going to get you through it in about 10 minutes. I'm, I'm a very, very complex, rich human being like everybody else. And I require you to take the time to get to know me in order to understand what I'm doing. Mm. And I require the time to get to know you as an orchestra, as a musician, to understand what you're doing. So I always hold off my judgment until very late. Mm. And the performances tell you many things. They yeah. develop, they develop, they tell you, show you aspects of their character, and then you decide what, what things are after that. 
And usually in my case, you know, people, you know, from the very get go, they, it, 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 it starts a little bit slow and then it builds up after that. And by the time we get to the end, uh, people can look around and the, the, the orchestra is like, wow, we're, we're playing really well with each other. Mm. And we're, we, we're all going in the same direction. And this guy's not disturbing us. And actually he's helping us and he's actually supporting us. Oh, now I see what he was doing. But that takes time. Yeah, it does. You know, yeah. you can't do that quick. You, 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 you can try to make it look like you do something quickly. But in the end, if you're doing it quickly, you're actually just grabbing the reins and going for it. Mm. And what is the type of work you want to do? So what you, your comment about like the, the you know, there's a place for us using Bernstein's words, you know, um, that, that's it. I and mean, you go to one orchestra, it doesn't work. You go to another one, it does work. And you go to the ones where it does work. And then you have sympathy and empathy and synergy. And, you create something. Mm. And I mean, it's just like life. I mean, there's no one way to do anything. No. There, there just isn't. Well, you just led on to my next question, which is a question I've asked every conductor. And as we've discovered, there is no one way of learning a score. Um, how do you go about learning a score? You said you had a, a big repertory. Um, do you have a set process? Do you use a piano? Um, and when you learn your scores, do you write in them uh, notes to yourselves or markings or even a colour system? Or do you like to keep them nice and virginally clean? <laughs> well, I, in the very beginning of my career, I, my studying, I had the six highlighters and four <laughs> coloured pencils and and ink pens i learned not to use ink pens and scores because i used to think okay this is for sure like this i was so of a crescendo or a certain marking i have since learned very quickly after probably about a year of doing pen markings in my scores that i have changed my mind on everything so if it's in pen in my score it's because there's actually something wrong yeah like there's a or something that is not that is factual so i don't put anything in ink that's not factual if I can put it that way. Yeah. Um, I have, a, there have been periods in my, my time where I have tried not to write anything and uh, that was fine. I have scores from that time. Those are, you know, they look brand new. I'd I can study music very, very quickly, Mike. Yeah, I remember I, I, I could, I learned Bruckner Third Symphony for one, uh, on, on an, an international flight from Sao Paulo to Hanover because oh, of wow. the cancer. I can learn music extremely fast and I can learn very complicated things. I love things like Goulez and Schauthausen. I can learn things like this very, very quickly. I, I don't need a piano. I don't like using recordings. Um, but what I prefer to do is I prefer to be working on a score for years before I yes. end up So in the case, I told you I was working on the Schoenberg Chamber Symphony and uh, the first the Chamber Symphony, I conducted that have it written in my score and 2008 was the first time but by that time I'd already studied it for probably about three years by then and this will be my fourth performance coming up uh, in a few months of the piece and I am now on score number three of it already all right wow you know so I I'm always buying scores again and again and again and remarking things uh, I use pencils I, so it red is for 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 harmony, blue is for dynamics, and you know my number two pencil is for anything including all of the above. Hmm. 
and um, I try to treat my scores like um, like libraries. And what I mean by that is uh, I try to write as much information in them now, not flippant information, but things that are helpful for my future performances, knowing that I will open that up again and need to look at it and say, oh, how did I solve that problem? Oh, here's how I solved it. And I will write notes to myself, note, solve this issue like this. Mm. Note, this balance is never going to work. You need to double the flutes here, you know, and, and different things like that. So I, I do a lot of work in this way with my scores. And, uh, and I try to have my own orchestral parts a lot of times as well. So they have my own bowings and my own markings so they can develop with me. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I have a lot of scores. I mean, I have a really, I've been buying scores since I was four, you know, 12 years old. And uh, the first score I ever bought was a Rite of Spring Dover. <laughs> and I'm on score, I think, number five of Rite of Spring already. And, uh, you know, I will conduct, for example, for the first time next season, Sostakovich 15. Well, I've been working on that score for seriously working on it for 10 years. Yeah. So oftentimes by the time I come to a, even what we would, a big piece of music like that, it's not something I start cracking, you know, a month before or even a year before, many, many years before. Mm-hmm. And if I know I'm going to take a new piece on my schedule, let's say our name, Malnas' Symphony Number no. 1 in, uh, in Malmo, I started working on that one year ago. Uh, yeah. when I can contact with it themselves. I, I, I tend to work quite far in advance and thoroughly trying to get manuscripts, trying to get copies of other versions of the score to see if there's something missing in my score, things like that. Yeah, and I will say I try to change uh, my scores when I start feeling... So I, I have a particular a, a proclivity to not repeat my repertoire. Mm. So I know a lot of conductors will say, okay, I'm doing this season, Tchaikovsky four or five, this you know, a set of like 15 symphonies, and they stick with that. And they rotate it all throughout the year and they don't go outside of that. Or they do like one month of just Tchaikovsky four or whatever. Um, I'm not like that at all. I change my repertoire every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, if I'm even doing, say, like uh, in Malmo last year, a Stravinsky festival we did, Oedipus Rex, Lenos, Firebird, Rider Spring, Petrushka, uh, Ebony Concerto, Agon, Apollon Music, Mass, uh, all of that within a two-week span. That That's fine. Um, or doing all the nine Beethoven symphonies in two weeks in Malmo, for example. I like doing things like that. Or in Buschetti, we're going to open next season, this season, with Schubert 9, the whole cycle, uh, the whole cycle of symphonies. So I, I like doing things like that. Um, and because I really love to, I, I it's sort of like a, a nervous tick that I want to change. <laughs> and, but I don't need a lot of, so for example, I had just recorded Beethoven's Second Symphony with Malmö Symphony Orchestra uh, in October. And during the confinement time, we did one of the digital concerts and we did that in, in March. And we did, we took Beethoven two up again. and it was shocking to the orchestra how much I had changed things <laughs> already by then. Mm. They really couldn't believe it. They said, oh, but this is what you said last time. I said, yeah, that was last time. Yeah, that, person's, <laughs> that person's dead. I said, it needs to be like this. Uh, and yeah. why? And I said, well, and, and actually, even to them, shockingly so, for example, I said, you know, folks, I'm sorry. I, even what I recorded, huh? it's what's on the disc. I said, I'm sorry. I made a huge mistake here. I, I, I did it this way. 
but I had forgotten that actually Beethoven wrote a letter about this, this, and this, and this issue. And actually this is related to that, blah, blah, blah. So I'm, I'm certain I did it wrong. I'm very mm -hmm. sorry. And I'll say just like that. And they, I mean, of course you can imagine the most orchestra musicians kind of like perk up looking at the guy on stage and who just recorded them that he would should think that he's the authority on it now. And then just saying, no, I was wrong about something. And was, what was I wrong about? A, a very small thing, of course, nothing terribly revelatory, but everything is revelatory because everything is like important in what we're doing. So, you know, it's, I, I, I want time between when I'm doing things so that I can develop it because I don't want I, to, to repeat things and make them become cookie cutter. And this comes to what my, my long way of saying that when I start finding that a piece of music has become a little bit routine, even, uh, the, even just the tiniest bit, even if it's changed every time, then I might take a brand new score. And yeah, then I yeah, might scratch yeah. to see if I can recreate the whole, the whole thing and, and see if I come up with something new. Robert, it's 10 questions time, and <laughs> I will start with questions one and two together. What sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? I really, really hate the sound of a fork going against the plate. Mm, mm. I really hate that. I also hate the sound of people chewing their food. Oh, God, yes. Oh, people who eat with their mouths open. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That really, really drives me nuts. Uh, and what do I love? I adore the sound of birds. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Reading a book. Great. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, you can give more than one answer to the next question. Most people do. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? Yeah. The one I would want to talk to if, if you were in a good mood would be Carrion. And what do you think you might get Carrion to tell you? I don't know. I, I, I just kind of be curious to, to just, just to, to actually, to, to see the man outside of all the, the, the media hype and all those things, to, mm. to really get to see a bigger vision of him. Oh, I can tell you another one I would really love to talk to. I'd really love to talk to uh, Footbonder. And he, I would, he, I would just try to understand how the hell his brain worked and why he made the decisions and i think if i just met him i would probably come to some conclusion about that because i to me he there's just something there's some aspect of his personality and the way he conducts and the way he makes music that hasn't ever really made sense to me completely how they're the same person mm. because marinsky is the same type of conductor in that way something that comes up that is purely extraordinary and absolutely you know remarkable and and yet there's a temperament that is somehow wild and at the same time extremely conservative and you see that even with footman where you watch a rehearsal with him you know and he just stops that's not together stops no you're putting the emphasis here no and that's like marinsky doing the same thing and i i'm always curious to to meet those type of people to see whether they are really like that where, where does that come from? Is that just simply their work and they, the way they, they, they approach the work or is that their nature? Mm. And I'm curious, always curious about that. Some conductors, I think their, their nature and their work are, are, 
are obvious. A person like Baron Bourne for me is a very obvious person. I mean, his way of living and his way of approaching things when he speaks and he engages with things, his way of making music, it makes sense. Mm. I, I see a, an enigma on what the connection is. There has to be a connection, but I don't always see it. Brilliant answers. Um, the next question... Long uh, no, 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 I've had much longer than that. Um, the next question some people find very difficult. Um, and who would be a favorite current conductor? Favorite current conductor? Oh, um, can I say a few? Of course you can, yeah. Uh, I really... Uh, for me, favorite conductor doesn't just revolve around like what they do on the podium. It revolves around like their philosophy and how they work and what they believe in and how they go about how they develop things. So one person is Simon Rattle. I have huge respect for him. Uh, I have a huge respect for uh, for Simeon Bichkov. Mm -hmm. Just absolutely over the moon. Uh, respect for him. I've had. Uh, Myers Johnson's was a person who I had a lot of respect for, and since he's recently passed, I feel like I can still say his name. Yeah. Um, and uh, on a controversial side, but from a purely musical side, I think a person like James Levine, and uh, it's a person who I would really, I have a lot of respect for them musically. Mm. Uh, and that's all, I think that's important for me to say musically, I have the respect for them. Yes. And, uh, Daniel Gatti is a conductor I've always respected as well. There's somebody who I've always thought has done really incredible music making and really thoughtful and dedicated uh, to the profession. And let's see here. Who else? Well, that's a pretty yeah. impressive list. <laughs> Daniel Gatti, Baron Boim is another conductor. He, he's a person I have a lot of respect for. Um, I really, really appreciate what he does. I have to admit, I didn't know uh, Kirill Petrenko so well um, from the past. Uh, I'm kind of a little bit of a, an inept person with keeping up with all of my colleagues, but uh, what I have seen and what I've watched is really, really exceptional music making, really mm. exceptional. Um, Mark Elder is another one. I really have a lot of respect for him as well. Um, I really like what he does. I've seen some really some great things with him when he was coming to Chicago a lot. John Andrea Nocera was another one I really liked as well. I think some great things. Esa Pekka, Solomon, Michael Tolson Thomas. I like him. I like a lot of people. <laughs> well, it's good, but they're all good. Um, and there are a couple of names there that people haven't mentioned, so that's brilliant. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? That's changed at different points. I mean, for example, uh, for uh, the Strauss uh, Death and Transfiguration was a piece that I, I had it scheduled once, and it was after my grandmother had passed away. Mm. Um, I, it was scheduled before she passed away. And that irregular heartbeat, actually, yes. when she was on the machine at the end, it was quite similar to that. So I had to call the orchestra up after she died, and I said, I'm sorry to do this, but I have to cancel this piece. I, I can't conduct it. So it took me quite a few years before I could come around to doing that. Um, Mozart Requiem is another piece that I, I have, I get quite emotional with. Um, another piece I get very emotional with, uh, and it took me a while before I would allow myself to conduct it with Mahler and I. Mm. And that's been emotionally difficult. I think, uh, I mean, do I, 
frankly, everything is difficult. <laughs> you know, the, the I'm, leaving, the, I'm, leaving, I'm leaving that in. <laughs> yeah, Te technically, I mean, like, like to swing the hands around and be in rhythm and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, that stuff is tricky, but that that's not really hard. I mean, you can teach a monkey to do it. Yes, yeah, and you, uh, a lot of that's muscle memory if you've done enough homework. It only becomes yeah. difficult if you're sight reading it and you haven't done enough homework in the first place. But yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, but sometimes the most difficult, I mean, what, what is difficult, I mean, a, a Mozart symphony just is a, is a Mount Everest, a Beethoven cycle. I mean, I, it took me a year and a half after we had contemplated the idea of doing it. And then, it was, then they said, okay, do you want to? It took me an, almost a year and a half before I could finally say, okay, well, I'll do it. Mm. Because I was terrified of it. I was terrified of the idea of doing it. And in fact, actually, if you don't mind, uh, as not an answer, uh, as an answer to this story, uh, <laughs> an anecdote that actually gets me through the day, because I am not terrified, but I well, actually, I, I, everything. I, I'm really honest when I say that everything is difficult. I, I think everything is really very difficult, and I used to be, I was incapacitated by that that sense of insurmountability of these of the, the the repertoire we have to deal with mm. and the music that we're engaging with that i because i always have felt that it is greater than me and i still do at this point robert told me how a chance meeting with lady Schulte helped him overcome his fears about conducting certain repertoire and then went on to tell me another great anecdote about how one great conductor asked another great conductor for advice and the ensuing conversation we had about rehearsing tuning with an orchestra if you want to hear that 10 minute discussion i've turned it into a patreon exclusive bonus mini episode for as little as £5 a month, you can get access to this mini-episode, as well as the previous 10 mini-episodes. You will also get a monthly bulletin podcast from me about my career, as well as advanced news about this podcast. You will also get an interview once a month with a prominent person from the classical music world who has dealings with conductors, as well as articles, essays, and all sorts of other conducting-based content. The details of how to join are in the show notes below, and I would love to see you subscribe to the Supporters Club of A Mic on the Podium very soon. Now, back to the 10 questions with Robert Trevino. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? <laughs> My suspenders. <laughs> <laughs> My yeah. suspenders. Uh, what else? No, there, there are a couple of other things that I... Just I, just I, to I, clarify for the British people who are listening, I think he means braces for those uh, yeah, British braces. people. <laughs> Suspenders are something else, and that, that might be something you might not want to admit on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 my braces. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I really need those. I have my, all my rehearsal clothes, that's another thing. Oh, I have to always take my, uh, my stretchy band for my stretches. Oh, that's yes. Mm. I'm always taking my stretchy band with me now for, for me to manage my stre stretches. What else am I always making sure I have with me? Oh, a raincoat. Always need a raincoat. Uh, you always, I always need to pack one suit, at least. And then, of course, my, my concert outfit, rehearsal clothes. Uh, plenty of deodorant. Always need to have that <laughs> so I don't, the poor musicians have to suffer my, my aroma. Uh, what else? Oh, I oh, I always like to try to have a book with me. Now, yeah. 
it, it can be a biography, it can be short stories or fiction, whatever. I don't always get to it, but I always have it there, and it's always nagging at me. So that, that's something that's important for me to always have with me. Um, another thing that is important for me to have with me uh, all my credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll cut together the best answers, but I'll, prob I'll probably leave su suspenders and braces in there. <laughs> um, there because no it'll get a laugh. Um, the next one, it can be real or fantasy, whatever you like. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Well, the thing I would, I, I, that I, the first thing that came to mind when you asked that question is something I am, in fact, trying to change. It's being so lonely. Mm. Um, and I don't mean that to sound all sad and pitiful, because, of course, outside of the traveling every week to different orchestras, and, and, but let's say even when you're with your own orchestra, I think that your job, one's job as a conductor, demands a certain amount of distance in some ways with the people that you are working with, and that you need to not show favoritism to the different people in front of you because your your responsibility is to the orchestra as a whole, not to the chosen few in front of you. So you know, like, oh, you have the flute player you like, or you have the concertmaster, the you, oh, you have the your your the you, the chosen ones, and I know some people work like that, and mm. and I think that's well. I mean, you're free to people are free to make whatever decisions they want, but it's not the way I like to work. I want I don't want somebody to feel like they're second class with me, because I don't feel anyone is second class. A person who's sweeping the streets is not second class to me. They're the mm. same. I treat them the same way I would treat a person who is principal viola of the you know Tonhalle Zurich Orchestra. And, and that's good, by the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so sometimes you, I think, and I'm a little guarded with, with being overly open with people because, you know, they all have their lives and I'm there to, to, to do my job. And it's not right for me to put my personal things on them whenever I think that their personal lives are hard enough as it is, probably. So sometimes in the past, I have felt quite lonely. I didn't allow myself to develop relationships, really close ones. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind that we're talking about anything beyond just a, a going out to a casual coffee or a dinner, mm. like really a, where I could expose a, a vulnerability, profound vulnerability, someone I could pass a hard moment with, and 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 have their confidence. And I I have felt that in the past that that is a difficult thing with the job, and we I know some of my colleagues who don't have that problem but they suffer from other issues whenever they're, because they're so gregarious with their colleagues uh, in the orchestra that they, in fact, create a, I think sometimes not a professional atmosphere amongst the, amongst the orchestra and themselves. Mm. Especially conductors who are, you know, wearing the height of the Me Too and, and, you know, conductors who are, you know, fraternizing with orchestra musicians uh, and, you know, Sure, everyone's a grown adult and can choose what they want to do, but one has to understand that you are not equal, and not in the sense that you are that, that as a conductor that you are better than. It's that you have a responsibility, you have a control, you have a capacity to decide things where the other person doesn't, and so you need to be very careful with how you use that position. And I think some. You know, we have seen more than enough examples of conductors who don't don't mind that, 
and they think it's perfectly okay for them to behave like an average person with an average other average person, but it's not so. They have a responsibility to the group. And that doesn't mean, in my personal point of view, that you have to remove yourself from the equation sometimes. Mm. And that means then you, you, you maybe can be a bit distant and not that way. So it's a, it's a tough I, balance. Yeah. yeah. You're not the first person to have mentioned loneliness. Daniel Harding mentioned it. In fact, I think he even said if you go into this profession not knowing how lonely it can be, uh, you're being very foolhardy. Um, and, yeah. and, fi- and striking that balance between being aloof uh, and distant. Uh, which is wrong on one side and being way too matey and pally, which is wrong on the other side of finding that balance, that knife edge or whatever in the middle, that, that middle path is a tricky thing. Um, and sometimes, you know, uh, yeah. you might make wrong decisions, but I think, yeah, I think it, it's an important topic. And I think it's most all young conductors should be well aware that, 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 that that's difficult. Uh, I remember when I first started conducting the CBSO, um, Sometimes I'd be playing in the orchestra in the, in the morning and then conducting them in the afternoon. And over lunch, I'd sort of try and be just totally distant, even leave the building and come back a different person. Uh, and that's rather tricky to do. Um, it's a lot easier with you guest conduct or conduct orchestras that you, you know already. Yeah, I, was, work, work, I used to work with the Symphony of Varsovia a lot, a very nice orchestra in Warsaw. And uh, I was a project with them. And at one point, the concertmaster well, we did like a Bach concert or something. And uh, and I said, well, you know, why don't you just leave this instead from the from the thing? And he started leading the rehearsal, and all of a sudden, the demeanor from the orchestra towards him changed mm. in the absence of me. Yeah, yeah. And and I laughed at him, and I said, that's what happens when you decide you want to stand up and start looking like a conductor, <laughs> because yeah. they all so because Ian, I'm sure you have felt you felt it. I mean, when you're in the orchestra, it's one way, and then when you stood in front of them, it's a yeah. it's almost like a different group of people. Yeah, and. And that should be more than enough evidence of the fact that the position is not equal. The position is is privileged. It is unique. And we, as those who are the you know holders of those positions, need to be extremely thoughtful about how we use it and how we engage with it. And if that and and I think when you look at you know stoicism, for example, which is kind of a fixation of mine right now with you know people like Marcus Aurelius, and you say, well, actually sacrificing the self for the betterment of the overall good is a very important thing. And if that means that you personally have to be a little bit alone sometimes and lonely, but the people who you are responsible for working for are working better together because of it, then it's a, it's a sacrifice that you're not only compensated well enough to, to take on and also rewarded in many ways, but it's also that your job and it's also the right thing to do in my opinion. And yeah. I have some friends in the, in, in some of some orchestras and I, when I engage with a friendship with a, with somebody in an orchestra I work with, I'm very upfront with them and saying, I prefer to keep our friendship quite private and, and that we, we keep it quite discreet because, um, you know, I just don't want people to, to, to think that you're going to be somehow favored over another person. And you need to understand me one way. And that's the, when I go to do my job, I'm going to do my job the same way and I will not give you an extra inch just because you're my friend. So never ask me for, never ask me for anything more than you would ask anyone else for and don't expect anything extra from me in the professional environment. I'm very clear with that. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, I would love to be a, I thought about either being a lawyer at one point 
Mm-hmm. And I, but one other job I'm very interested in is uh, pathologist. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was actually interested in doing that for the longest time as well. And I sometimes uh, think about leaving conducting altogether to become a politician. <laughs> well, plenty of people are doing it these days. Um, <laughs> not necessarily well, conductors. I, but I want to be a politician just because I would like to be able to, to, to make a difference. And actually, one of my very close, very good friends told me, in fact, I should never do that because temp- politicians are temporary and conductors can be permanent. And in that way, you actually have the capacity to make the max, even much more of an impact on a lot of people's lives as a conductor than you do as a politician. I think I think your friend is correct, um, and uh, and also you'd be hated by far fewer people as well, <laughs> which is hard to imagine. By the way. I know it is hard to imagine, but it's true. Um, <laughs> and finally, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? I would want uh, I would I would want my wife's pizza. Mm. I would want to have some tacos mm. with rice and beans. I would want to have uh, fantastic red wine. Hell, since I can drink as much as I want, I have yeah, a great can. wine too. But maybe two good red wines, and then I would for sure need to end with a cigar and a whiskey. Brilliant, Scottish or American. If it's brown, I drink it. <laughs> brilliant. Robert, I've had a brilliant time. Wonderful topics of conversation. Wonderful to talk to you. And I hope to see you in the near future. Thank you so much. Great pleasure to do this with you. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an Italian conductor who won the 1985 Toscanini Conductors' Competition and has had a truly international career ever since. He's probably best known for his two stints as music director of Welsh National Opera, where he is now Conductor Laureate. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>